Please pray with me. Our Father, this is your holy word. And we humble ourselves at the feet of it. We pray, Lord, that your word would go forth in boldness, in all strength and might, that it would accomplish all that you have set out for it to do, that it would not return empty and void. Father, we pray for the hearers. We pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts. We pray that you would unstop our deaf ears, that we would hear you. Father, we pray that you would uh, allow us to hear what it is that you have for us. We pray, Lord, that your voice would be heard most clearly. We pray for the speaker that you would give him clarity of thought, humility, and that you would give him a clear speech. All this we pray in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Where does greatness come from? How do you define greatness? What does a person need to possess to become someone great, or in our eyes, to be a great person? For some of us, greatness isn't about being a rock star or a famous actor as it is often in the world. In fact, for most of us, greatness has to do with the influence that we have on others, the legacy that we leave behind, those things done by the work of our own hands. In other words, greatness is that thing which we all hope that at the end of our lives we will be remembered for doing. It's that legacy that we leave behind. Were we good fathers or good wives, faithful friends? Whatever that answer to that question of greatness might be for you, no matter how we phrase it, we each desire to see greatness manifested in ourselves in one way or another. We're always looking within ourselves to find it in some way, hoping that someday, beyond all hope, that what we have done with our lives, or hope to, will be enough. We love hearing stories about men who have achieved greatness in one way or another, leaving behind a legacy for many to follow in. One story that kept coming back to my mind this week was the story by Ernest Hemingway called The Old Man and the Sea. And the story, uh, though it may not seem like it, is really a story of greatness. And it revolves around this elderly man who, in one sense, is destined for greatness. This old man has spent his whole life fishing, and now, after 84 days without catching a single fish, he finally catches the big one. He hits his big break, and in doing so, he finds himself battling against the greatest fish he has ever faced in his life. As the story unfolds, as he battles against this great marlin for three days and three nights, we begin to see what this man is really made of. We begin to see a glimpse of the greatness that is within this particular man. What legacy he will leave behind for others to follow in. Because he goes up against his greatest opponent and he wins. He looks straight into the eye of his enemy and he comes out on the other side victorious 
over him. And we love these kind of stories, don't we? We love stories about men who have conquered in spite of the overwhelming odds against them. Men who by their own hands have accomplished something worthwhile with their lives. And we love them because deep down, deep down, we want greatness too. We want to be told how much our work means to other people. We want to be praised for the legacy that we will leave behind, even if it's only a few of our dearest friends or family. It still is the desire of our hearts to be praised in some sort for some sort of greatness found within us. This morning, as we continue working through the book of Ephesians, we come to a text where Paul is honing in on greatness. And he reveals to us what is the source of true greatness, but it doesn't come from within. It doesn't come from the works of our own hands. You see, Paul begins to unfold the mystery to us, a mystery that has been hidden through the ages, but now is being revealed in all wisdom and insight. And in so doing, Paul reveals to us the surpassing greatness of Christ in all things. Our text opens up this morning, and the first thing we see is the revelation of Christ. The revelation of Christ. Paul, after he unfolds the mystery of the Trinitarian God who redeems a people for himself, electing a people from eternity past, redeeming a people through the work of Christ Jesus in history on the cross by his perfect life and death, he then moves on. After talking about the Holy Spirit and how he seals us up to the end of time, after he revels in the glories of the gospel from verses 3 through 14, he now begins to switch gears a little bit on us. Paul is still enamored by the grace of the gospel, but now he moves from praise to prayer, or at least explaining what his prayers look like to us. It's a pattern Paul often follows in his letters, moving from praising God for hope and faith that is welling up within the saints throughout the world, and then revealing to them how he prays for their most pressing needs. He does this in the book of Colossians, beginning with thanksgiving and praise for the saints and the hope that they have laid up in heaven because of the truth of the gospel that they believe. And then he reveals to them how he prays for them, asking for very similar things to what we have before us here in Ephesians. Again, Paul does the same thing in Philippians And in Philemon, praising God for the redemption of God that he is working out in particular churches and particular individuals, and then um, revealing the secret ways or the specific ways he prays for those saints. Beloved, it's a very wonderful and fitting progression to move from praising God for the redemption of the saints that he is writing to. And it's a fitting progression because the good news of Jesus Christ dying for sinners isn't the end of the story, is it? It's a really 
good news for sinners such as ourselves, but for us who are members of Christ's body, who know these truths and rest in them, there is still one big problem we face, the elephant in the room that we have to deal with. We all still live in the world, don't we? We still live in a world marred by sin. We still deal with bodies corrupted by sin, fighting against the desires of the flesh. We find ourselves dealing with all kinds of hardships and struggles. And though what Paul has declared in 3 through 14 is the greatest truth of all time that has ever been, he moves on. And it's appropriate that he moves on to prayer even demonstrating in his own prayers to us the problem that we face because our story isn't over. We still live lives affected by mankind's fall into sin, and we feel it every day. I mean, this is something, I'm not telling you anything new. We feel it in our bodies, our very being, when we stub our toes or when we get sick and need to go to the doctor. We feel it when loved ones die around us, when death is about us. We feel it in our wills, when, our wills, when we do those things which we ought not to have done and don't do those things which we ought to have done. Even our minds are not immune to the effects of the fall. We have been corrupted in body, in mind, and in soul. Sin lies still within us and is all around us. And to that end, Paul prays for the saints. You see, Paul prays to our Heavenly Father that the saints might be given wisdom, that they might receive revelation of knowledge, that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened. So what does that all mean? Why pray for these particular things? Well, Paul's not praying for the saints as though they've never believed. He's not praying for the saints, the people of God, who have already attested to Christ Jesus as their Lord and Savior, asking that they would rest and receive Christ for the first time. He's asking the Father to open the eyes of their hearts, not as though they've never believed and never had their heart, the eyes of their hope, hearts opened before, Rather, Paul is praying that the saints would be growing more and more in the grace and knowledge of Christ. And that's what ministers are praying for when they, you hear them pray this in their prayers. Just so you know, this is not saying that the people would believe for the first time, but that they would grow ever more in the grace and mercy of God because we need to see that grace and mercy ever more before us. And continue to grow in it because we battle against the flesh within us and the world and the devil himself. We need to see this grace lifted before us. And Paul is asking that the people of God would not be blinded by this world that is around them. That they would not be distracted by what they see with their physical eyes when they look about that they would not despair when they see a world all around them where the ways of the wicked prosper. And he asks that the Father would reveal to the people of God through the eyes of their hearts 
the realities of a world beyond sight. He's praying that the revelation of the gospel would be made more and more, uh, or would be revealed more and more fully to the people of God. People of God, what Paul is asking our Father in heaven to do for the church of Christ Jesus is to allow her to drink deeply of the mercies of God in Christ Jesus. That God would not open our eyes of our heart to believe for the first time. This isn't easy believism where you know you pray once and you're covered for life. But he is praying that the good news of Christ Jesus, who came into the world to save sinners, who lived a perfect life in their place and died as a substitute for those sinners, that he would continue to unfold the mystery of this gospel before the people of God. In order that the depths of the riches of the wisdom and the mercy of God would continue to unfold for us and be new to us each new morning. But Paul doesn't stop here. He doesn't stop when he asks that it be revealed to us more fully the riches of the inheritance of the gospel or that we perceive more fully the hope of the calling that we have as the saints of God. But he asks that we would perceive the power of Christ himself the power of Christ himself. As we move into verses 19 and following, some have argued that Paul gets to verse 19, and he seems to get sidetracked here, like he doesn't know where he was going originally, and suddenly he's where he didn't intend to be in the first place, but I strongly disagree with that opinion. It seems more like Paul is just getting warmed up, like he's finally loosened up, he's stretched his theological muscles, and now we're actually getting to the heart of what Paul wanted to say to begin with. This is Paul's main point here. He is reaching the crescendo. This is the high point of his prayer for the saints. And as he prays, as he reaches this crescendo, he prays that our God would show forth his power to the people of God. The text actually highlights the power of God multiple times here, even saying the surpassing, that we would see the surpassing greatness of his power or the powerful working of his power toward us who believe. It's worth pausing here for a moment and just considering what's going on. Of all the things that Paul could turn our attention to in, our, in his prayers, of all the things that he could lift before the Heavenly Father to pray for the saints, of all the ways he could lift the people of God up, think about that. Of anything he could ask the Heavenly Father who withholds no good gift from his children, he asked for this thing. He asked that the power and might and greatness of God be revealed clearly to the people of God. Why? For what purpose does it serve to pray this way? What is his intent? What is he getting at? In 2 Kings chapter 6, Elijah is in a city, and the city is surrounded by an army of Syrians whose sole purpose 
in surrounding that city is to destroy the prophet Elijah. And Elijah's servant who is with him runs to tell him what's going on, and it's clear that this servant is shaken and terrified for the powers around him as he sees them, as he looks out of his window and sees the powers that surround him, he is overwhelmed. They clearly outmatch him. The might of the men around him are out to destroy them, and they are, are, is, there is greatness all about them. And there seems to be no way out. The powers of the world that be are literally crushing in on Elijah and on his servant. And Elijah calmly looks at his servant and says, O oh Lord, please open his eyes, the eyes of his heart, that he might see. And the Lord opened his eyes, and behold, the mountains were filled with horses and chariots of fire. You see, people of God, Paul is turning our attention away from the powers that be in this world, away from the things that we see with our eyes, that we withhold, withhold or behold by our senses. And he is turning our eyes to the power and might and strength of the Lord. For the one who is within you is greater than the world. Because if the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, sent an army to defend his people in ages past, if this great God has displayed his power and might in redeeming a people unto himself, then what have we to fear when we see things not going according to the plan around us that we hoped to pursue? If this great God the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, if this God has the power to raise a man from the dead, if Christ is no longer dead but bodily raised from the grave and ruling at the right hand of God, if he really and truly sits above all rulers, above all authorities, above all the powers that are or will be in this world, then what need have we to make a name for ourselves by the work of our own hands. What does it matter if our name is great or not? What does it matter if we leave behind a legacy for all to see? You see, people of God, our God is so powerful that everything that has been given a name under heaven and on earth has been placed under his feet as a footstool. Everything in this world that has a name, everything that is or will be, he reigns supremely over. All peoples, all creatures, anything and everything that could possibly do his people harm, everything is ruled and controlled by our God, by the great and heavenly Father who brings dead men to life again. He isn't just drawing our attention to this so that we can wonder and look at the greatness of God. Paul is driving this home. He has a reason for what, it, what he is doing. And he sells us and lets us know in verses 22 and 23 that this one who is over all, who controls all things, who is the head over all things, even and especially the church. 
This one has united himself to a people. And he displays his power and greatness that we might see that it is our greatness too. At the conclusion of the old man in the sea, the old man comes back to land after he has killed this fish, but all that he has left, all that he has worked for, everything he has struggled to produce amounts to nothing. You see, after the old man kills the fish, this greatest fish that he has ever or struggled against, the legacy that he will leave behind after he kills the fish, sharks smell the blood in the water. And they begin to come and they begin to feed on the dead fish. And by the time the old man gets back to the village, all that is left behind besides the tired old man is a carcass of bones. You see, beloved, the point is simply this. When we trust in the works of our hands for greatness to be achieved, when we trust what we do at the end of the day, it will amount to nothing. It will amount to less than a pile of bones. When we are dead and gone, what will be left of our names? Will the, will the work of our hands remain? I mean, possibly, for a time, people might remember who you are or what you did, but only for a time. But if we just, for a moment, had the roof ripped back here in this place and looked into the heavenly realms and see with our eyes Christ Jesus seated at the right hand of God, this one whose body died and now sits and rules over all things, this same body who has been raised now sits with all power and all control and all active or all authority, actively ruling, coming over all things that are. And ever will be. If you could see that just for a moment, if the eyes of your heart were open to see that, how would that change you? What would that do? Would it give you a greater confidence in the work of Christ on that cross where he makes all things new? Would you see the greatness of his work and lay down your own petty concerns at his feet? I know it sounds simplistic, I know it sounds too easy and too good to be true, like somehow just trusting in Christ's power makes everything easy or go away. But that's not what I'm saying. That's not what Paul is saying. The point is simply, look outside of yourselves for greatness. Look away from within and look to Christ. Look to an objective reality beyond your eyes, what your eyes can see. Because, beloved, Christ overcame the power of hell and death itself. And you, who are in Christ, are hidden in him. Which means that there is no more sting of death. Are you worried about death? Are you worried about death that is coming? There is no sting of death left for us. Are you worried that your life won't amount to a hill of beans in this crazy world when, when you're gone? You won't really have anything left or left anything great behind. People of God, take courage. 
For you are connected to Christ Jesus. You are united to the greatest being in the universe. This one who has done the greatest work that ever will be or ever was. And when you are united to him, people of God, you live. You live in the greatest legacy that has ever been built. One that will last even to the end of all days. People of God, trust in that. Trust in that all-sufficient, all-powerful God who has united himself to you. The people of God as a head is united to a body. He is within us and he fills all in all. Let us pray. Our Father, we come before you humbled at your greatness. Father, who are we? We are men made from the dust of the ground, and from dust we shall return. But you are the great God who redeemed a people to yourself. You chose a people and elected them from, the from before the foundations of the world, and you accomplished that work of redemption in history, drawing a people to yourself, sealing them up until the end of time. And Father, we pray for your people. We pray, Lord, that you would open the eyes of their hearts, that they might see you high and lifted up, you who withheld nothing from us, not even the Son of God, Christ Jesus. And we pray, Father, that you would open our eyes that we might see the grace and the mercies and the riches of Christ. We pray, Lord, that you would humble us. You would help us to see our need to dwell in you. Show us how we have sought to, in pride, raise ourselves up. And Father, forgive us of our pride and turn us to Christ. Father, it's in his name we pray and we uh, ask all these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.